Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. The stunning success of the West Virginia teachers' wildcat strike, winning a 5% raise not only for themselves, but all the state's public employees, could suggest we're on the cusp of a new era of worker militancy. This comes at the same time as the Supreme Court is considering the Janus case, the decisions expected in June that will weaken public sector unions. So the victory in West Virginia, a state full of public school teachers with no legal right to collective bargaining at a time of shrinking union membership nationwide is all the more amazing. Teachers in Oklahoma with the lowest pay in the country in a state with extremely weak union representation are considering going the West Virginia way. And while unions are ever weaker, there's more public support for them, even with the people who voted for Trump. On today's podcast, labor journalist Rebecca Cohen and Sean Richmond, a former union organizer and author of Labor's Bill of Rights, who has an article in the Washington Post on the unintended consequences of the Janus case, join us to unravel the unintended consequences and talk about the possibilities for labor. And later, Dean of Cal Berkeley's Law School and constitutional scholar Erwin Chemerinsky joins us to untangle the Trump administration's lawsuit against the state of California over three state laws the California legislature has passed to ensure that the state isn't complicit with the Trump administration's use of ICE raids, detention, and deportation that the state sees as unconstitutional and un-American. All this and more on Jacobin Radio. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we're going to look at labor and some of the outstanding successes of the past period and some of the big threats coming. And that is with the West Virginia teachers' wildcat strike that ended successfully, and it wasn't just for the teachers, but all public sector workers, and the looming Oklahoma teachers' strike. They are the lowest paid in the union. And then This is almost as if it were scripted, but at the very same time, the Supreme Court is considering the Janus case that promises to gut public sector unions by allowing people to not pay or to be free riders, in other words, will actually be able to be free riders. But I brought in two journalists slash experts to discuss it, and we're going to do this roundtable fashion, beginning with Rachel Cohen, who's a contributing writer for The Intercept, and she's recently written on the Oklahoma teachers, who I just said are considering the kind of wildcat strike that just ended in victory for teachers and public sector workers in West Virginia. And both of these states are with weak union representation, very low pay, and no strike clauses that make their action illegal. And as I mentioned before, the Oklahoma teachers have the lowest pay in the country. But as West Virginia has shown, the mood is changing. And that's really why I wanted to talk about this, because I think we're on the cusp of something. And maybe our guests won't agree, but we'll certainly discuss it. Sean Richmond is with us as well. He's a former organizing director for the AFT, American Federation of Teachers, and he's the author of the Century Foundation's report, The Labor Bill of Rights. And he's got this recent article in the Washington Post that's, I would say, within mainstream news fashion is going viral because it's being picked up in Minneapolis and other places. And it's called, If the Supreme Court Rules Against Unions, Conservatives Won't Like what happens next. In other words, that case might do more than just defund unions. So we're going to get both Sean Richmond and Rachel Cohen to unravel the possible outcomes, intended and unintended, that could result from this conservative onslaught on unions. 
let's start with you, Rachel, because your article talks about first West Virginia, but also what might be happening in Oklahoma. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, first of all, what your interviews with people there and what you wrote in The Intercept and whether or not they're actually going to go on strike and how West Virginia may have inspired them. Sure. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that they're both happening at the same time. I think a lot of people have definitely like to say that they're doing this, you know, that the West Virginia folks have inspired them. And I think that's definitely been in their discussions. But the situation in Oklahoma has been escalating for a couple of years now. So basically, they're the 49th lowest paid state for teachers on average. Oh, I thought they were the lowest. No, Mississippi beats them. And they haven't had a raise in a decade. And they were supposed to get a raise in 2016, but their Republican-controlled legislature couldn't get it done. There was a really big, high-profile ballot initiative. Oklahoma is a state that can put stuff on the ballot that people vote for. And everyone thought it was going to pass in 2016. But in the end, through sort of like a really last-minute, aggressive campaign, the, the Oklahoma Chamber of Commerce, lots of other people, the measure ended up failing like by a lot. And Republicans didn't like it because it would have raised the state sales tax by 1%. And a lot of Democrats didn't like it because it would have been a regressive tax on the poor. So at the end of the day, the teachers didn't get their raise that year. And the legislature was like, we'll get it to you the next year. We promise we will not adjourn in 2017 without getting a raise. But then they did (laughs) because, again, they had a number of different proposed tax increases, but they couldn't get enough support for it. So that 2017 effort failed in October. And then what happened after that was in December, this kind of new coalition of elite, basically CEOs and like big hobnobs in Oklahoma came together and we were like, we need to get something done. We need to push something through. So they formed this thing called Step Up Oklahoma, where they put together a number of proposals, among them $5,000 teacher pay increase. And they sort of pitch it as like, this is our last chance. This is the compromise that we need to reach. We need to come together as a state and, and pass these bipartisan compromise practical positions or else, like, that's it. But then the legislature voted on it in mid-February and it failed. But the thing is that teachers are obviously super frustrated that that didn't pass. But at the same time, that proposal has a lot of not progressive things in it. There's a lot of reasons. A lot of Democrats voted against it. They didn't tax the oil and gas industry as high as a lot of people think they Mm -hmm. should be getting taxed. It had a lot of regressive, it like rewarded teachers and then also threw in a bunch of other aggressive taxes on top of it. I think it's notable that the the union supported that proposal and Mm -hmm. they wanted it to get passed. And it's understandable that teachers are really pissed that it didn't get passed, but it's also... I think worth noting who pushed this plan and, and the actual details of it besides the fact that teachers were going to raise. And so that's kind of where things are. And I think this teacher strike, now that that failed on like February 12th, I think, or February 15th, and since then, teachers understandably are like, but we cannot trust the legislator to get anything done. We need to go on strike or we need to do something as sort of a last resort kind of thing, which I think is helpful to build up more pressure. There's still time left this year in Oklahoma's legislative session, so they could vote on something else 
something better than the step-up plan, which the business community said the step-up plan is the best that they could do, but a lot of people don't believe that. Uh Stephen Greenhouse wrote in the New York Times that both these strikes, West Virginia and maybe the looming one in Oklahoma, could be the start of what he sees as a revolt against austerity policies. And what you've just laid out, Rachel, is exactly that, that, in fact, in these states where unions have been hobbled, their right to work, which is a misnomer, and that strikes are essentially illegal, forcing them to go on wildcat strikes. For those who don't know that, that means strikes not sanctioned by the union, and in this case, I guess, illegal. Do you think that that's the case? You've described in Oklahoma teachers with poverty wages, and probably the kids they teach are even poorer yet, maybe not universally, but well, maybe you could just, both of you, in fact, come in and talk about, like, why it is that now they're resorting to the wildcat strike. But I'm not sure that this is really a wildcat strike. I think that's kind of been a misnomer, honestly, because A, the union is, there's some organizing that's happening outside of the union, like on Facebook, but the union is getting very involved in the idea of a walkout and sort of engaged in this. And actually a lot of state superintendents and education leaders are sort of on board and and they're not allowed to go on strike, but all the districts are sort of awarded a number of days that you can shut down your school and use school closures. And that's kind of what the thinking is that uh, teachers will do. They'll sort of shut down the district and school so it doesn't technically count as a strike, which would be illegal. Anyway, I guess to your point, I do think this is uh, a rebellion, but I'm not sure it really fits that frame that it's like a rebellion from the union. I kind of feel like it's trying to pigeonhole it into something that's not really what's going on here. Well, maybe if we could just sort of frame that better. I said wildcat, but in this case, the union supported the strike in West Virginia, and as you say, they're behind them in Oklahoma, but they're hobbled. They're hobbled by labor laws. Yeah, there was definitely a wildcat strike in West Virginia, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so Sean, let's bring you in on that. Maybe before we get to Janice, we can talk a little bit more about what the significance of West Virginia and the possible strike in Oklahoma means. And and for someone who comes from the teachers' union. Yeah, although, I mean, I have very, very little experience with West Virginia and Oklahoma because I was doing more charter school organizing in the private sector with the NLRB, and these are stranger systems to me. West Virginia, I have to say, from what I gleaned from my colleagues, I'm shocked that the strike happened, i got to say, because it feels like the system that the legislature set up, the union representation system that the Democrats did decades Mm -hmm. ago, was perfectly designed to sap unions of their militancy because while there's no formal collective bargaining, there are degrees of formal representation, there's meet and confer, and there is tenure, and workers can file grievances, and they can have union representation at those grievances, and then the legislature sets the pay and the benefits, which sort of puts the union in a frame of going out there and selling themselves to workers as a service, like join the union so that you have somebody to represent you if there's a grievance, and to an orientation towards legislative lobbying. So it always struck me as perfectly designed to sap unions of their militancy. But I also sort of assumed that the legislature understood that they needed to at least provide their workers with a minimally decent standard of pay and benefits. And that's where this went awry. And that's where a lot of what's happening in this country with workers is going awry. It's not just austerity in the public sector. 
I think the reason that the fight for 15 organizing and those series of strikes have been as successful as they are as well is just like when you push workers back to the wall as you have, you're going to start getting these kinds of rebellions. But I want to throw a little cold water on this notion. I do think that we are heading towards a period of more frequent strikes, messier labor relations, more protest over the working conditions. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's all going to be successful, right? I mean, part of what worked about the labor relations system that developed coming out of the New Deal and sort of formal contract bargaining and collective bargaining agreements and these long periods of labor peace and a private welfare system, that system worked. And part of making it work is that it, it sort of it made strikes and job actions rarer and more sort of formalized and more legally prescripted and regulated. The regulations are going to go out the window, which means that there's going to be more job actions, there's going to be more protests, but they're not all going to be very successful because we're still outgunned by it. There's a hell of a lot more money and power on the other side. And bringing back the strike, which is a thing that I firmly believe we have to do, and I've been doing a lot of deep thinking and writing about, is a thing that's easier said than done. So the West Virginia teachers went on strike. It winds up being a very successful strike. It winds up being very inspiring. That doesn't mean that Oklahoma is going to have nearly the same amount of success. I dearly hope that they do, but we're bound for some setbacks as well. We're bound for, I think, what we might be coming back to is stuff that looks more like before 1935, the 1920s, the 19-teens, earlier, when you might have had multiple unions competing in workplaces, you might have had unions trying to leapfrog each other in terms of making bolder demands in wage and benefits and hours, and who could run a bigger strike. Rarely did it lead to a contract or a settlement on the union's terms. It might have led to the boss conceding some terms in order to lure enough workers back to work. But it didn't lead to a permanent representation of the unions at the workplace. Well, I want to go into the history, Sean, and I think this is really a valuable part of your articles that you brought that in. But let's just say in West Virginia, let's dwell for a minute on the scope of this victory in the context in which it was fought, because it seems to have turned the tide and that this is a strike that gained public sympathy, and it gained public sympathy from the very people in West Virginia who were also Trump voters. And that tells us something about what's afoot in the country, I think. And I listened to some of the interviews, and some of them I think both of you interviewed, especially I think Rachel did. You know, these are people that come from Mingo County, where you had the coal wars. And you just mentioned, Sean, that it could bring back the days when unions competed against each other and poached each other, and it led to all kinds of messy things, and it may not lead to success, but it might also lead to a truly militant labor movement that if Janice goes through is unshackled, as both of you have written by some of the, I guess, restraints that labor law in this country uniquely puts workers under. So maybe we could go from there. Maybe a first way to start is that you both worked on Sean's report on a worker's bill of rights. So maybe we should start by what it is that you say in that, and how does that pertain to what you think is going on now? So Labor's Bill of Rights is a project that I've been trying to push out since this past summer, and it's about trying to shine a light on the very, very unequal application of constitutional rights in Mm. the workplace. Corporations 
have free speech rights, thanks to Citizens United, workers surrender their free speech rights at the boss's doorstep. And a lot of what has held unions back for the last 40 years or longer is that our best actions, our most powerful actions, are frequently restrained by the law and by the courts. If workers want to make common cause with consumers or with their constituents that they're serving by criticizing how the employer is treating them shabbily and underfunding them, is making a poorer product, there's a body of case law that says that those workers can then be fired for being disloyal, for disparaging their boss's product, right? And workers can be permanently replaced for going on strike, even though the National Labor Relations Act says explicitly that that should be a protected activity because of something stupid that some judge said on the Supreme Court in 1937. And forget about what it takes to form a union under the National Labor Relations Act in this country right now, that for the period where workers are waiting to vote in a government-conducted election, one party, and one party only, the party that, that is advocating a no vote, can force every voter to attend a mandatory meeting to hear why they should vote no or be fired. And that, when you step back and you look at it that way, that is a pretty outrageous restriction of workers' speech rights. And the Janus case is supposedly all about workers' speech rights. But here you have a way that workers' speech rights are holding us back from being able to successfully organize and grow the labor movement. And so what I'm advocating in Labor's Bill of Rights is that rather than avoid the courts at all costs, which is what unions have tended to do for 70 years now, we should be consciously and strategically bringing court challenges through unfair labor practices at the National Labor Relations Board to challenge this unequal application of constitutional rights. I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio, and I'm speaking with Rachel Cohen and Sean Richmond, and we're talking about the strikes in West Virginia, the looming strike in Oklahoma, and now we're moving into the Janus case that is before the Supreme Court and will probably be decided in June, but arguments are being heard now. And I'm going to ask uh, you two to both explain it more fully, but everyone is pessimistic that it will end in any other way than public sector unions getting defunded. Some say that the right is doing this in order to defund the Democratic Party. But as both Rachel and Sean have written, that there's unintended consequences. So maybe we could just lay out what that case is, what its ramifications are, and then go into the unintended consequences. And you bounce off each other, so I'm going to let you both do that now. Perhaps maybe, Sean, since you wrote the article in The Washington Post, you should start. Actually, Rachel, why don't you talk about the operating engineers and the crazy stuff they're doing? I heard a story. I mean, basically, so the case, which Mark Janus is saying, you know, it's a violation of his free speech rights to have to pay union agency fees, even though those are not going towards the union's political lobbying work, because the distinction is not meaningful, and, and you can't compel that kind of money, that kind of speech. So that's, that's what the case is about. And while basically the whole narrative thus far, the commentary has been about how this is going to really decimate Democratic coffers. We're going to see what happened in Wisconsin happened all over the country, and it's going to just severely weaken the public sector unions. The International Engineering Union, which has chapters in different states, but they came up with an idea, and they said, you know, I don't think that the plaintiffs are thinking this through enough, because there's two sides to that coin, and there's two sides to that argument. And if Mark Janus says that that paying union dues is a restriction on his free speech rights, then 
there's a lot of different angles you can go with that from the flip side. You could say that a state restricting what people can bargain over is a restriction on their free speech rights. Or you could say that requiring a state to have to cover union representational services for someone who is out there trying to, who doesn't support them or is out there trying to destroy their work is a violation of their constitutional rights. Basically, the idea being that for the past 40 years, the Supreme Court has drawn a distinction between the speech of political lobbying and, and advocacy versus the, versus collective bargaining activities. And Mark Dennis is trying to say that distinction is not meaningful. We should collapse that distinction. But the argument put forth by this engineering union is saying, if you collapse that distinction, you're going to collapse possibly a lot more with it. And you're going to open the floodgates to all sorts of challenges. And we're already starting. And they already filed three lawsuits, two in Illinois, one in Wisconsin, one challenging Scott Walker's infamous law that he signed in 2011 that is responsible for basically depleting public sector unions in his state. And Sean can take it from there. But I think, you know, when I heard about this, and I had already written a piece about Janice, and I've been covering, I've been following all the coverage since Friedrichs, and it's true. Very few people, with the exception of Sean, really were running with that threat of it. What are the unintended consequences of collapsing that distinction between collective bargaining and and political activities. And Sean, when you go into this discussing what this case is really about, could you maybe as well let our listeners know how this differs from the Friedrichs case? It doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was easy. It's a complete replay of it. Look, I mean, what's outrageous about this is that Justice Samuel Alito, this is his theory, he has actively inserted this into cases that it has nothing to do with and he's been basically soliciting for the vast right-wing conspiracy to bring this argument to the court for years now. He tried to get it into Harris v. Quinn in, I guess that's going back to 2014. He didn't have enough votes at the time. Friedrichs came along very shortly thereafter. And for Alito to get his way, for him to make agency fees completely illegal and unconstitutional, the court has to say, basically, that every interaction that a union has with the government is inherently political, and therefore, by compelling people to pay fees to their union, it is the government compelling those people's speech by participating in an inherently political organization, even when the union is bargaining over who gets to have Tuesdays and Wednesdays off at the Department of Sanitation. That somehow is a political debate. And so it's so extreme and it's so ridiculous But this is the panicked right wing trying to grab as much power as they can as they are increasingly losing votes and losing power, right? And so it's it's totally about bankrupting the unions and knocking out the Democrats, get out the vote operation. But if they adopt that reasoning, there's a lot of chaos that can be created. What I love about what the operating engineers are doing is that I'm just a writer. All I can do is is write (laughs) and say, like, you know, who knows what's going to happen. They're just doing it. And so it becomes a lot more real. And I think part of what they're hoping to do, and what I'm hoping to do, is, is that rather than this being a dry sort of throwaway reference in a legal brief in the case, that folks can point to a body of activists who are saying, like, no, bring it on. It's, That's it's what I was just going to say, those exact it's words. Right. But let me just, you know, come in there because there's also like a lot of disputes. I'm reading a lot of articles where people are arguing with each other over whether or not 
a negative outcome for unions in the Janus case is necessarily a bad thing and other things. Yeah, it's going to be really bad. But you bring out some silver linings and you both just talked about free speech because if, I mean, well, let me ask, does this mean that everything's going to be settled now or rather brought to the courts to discuss whether free speech rights have been violated? It's a constitutionally protected, your right to free speech. How do you see this? Let's talk about those consequences. We owe it to ourselves to turn every workplace dispute into a constitutional crisis. <laughs> Look, this is bad. If we lose Janus, it is bad. I, just unequivocally, it's going to be bad. We're going yeah. to lose a lot of union members. Unions are going to lose a lot of power on the front end. And so what is our revenge? Our revenge should be turn this into chaos, make them grapple with the implications and, and, and play out the thread of the argument that they made. And the pushback that I get more often on, on what I'm saying from people who, who understand what they're talking about is, look, these guys are craven. A 5-4 majority that, that goes with Justice Alito on this doesn't really give a crap about appearing to be reasonable or thoughtful or, or ideologically consistent, which is true. But the reason they're doing this is that they are panicked that they are going to lose their majority, which means we're going to have more federal circuit courts and eventually a Supreme Court that could be convinced of our arguments. And in the meantime, let's make those arguments. And let's, let's also play out the thread of what the attorney for AFSCME said in the hearings, that agency fee is traded for the no-strike clause in bargaining, particularly in private sector bargaining. You want to knock out one component of the very foundation of what has been a fairly stable labor relations system in this country, then you deserve the chaos that you're inviting. So in other yeah. words, it will and bring back I, the strike. Go ahead, Rachel. The other, the other thing is that going with what Sean said about the Supreme Court being nervous, and that's why they're rushing it, like, people forget how unusual it is that a Supreme Court would take a nearly identical case two years apart. They used, <laughs> two you know, years. with abortion, Nothing. with the abortion issue it was 1992-2007-2016 like the supreme court very rarely wants to adjudicate on the same kind of issue for a long time but then in, with friedrichs they didn't end up doing it so there was you know more of a reason but i think like there's a reason to think that regardless of what happens with janus you're going to have a pretty long time of just kind of chaos in the lower courts like we see with reproductive rights all over the country you know there's tons of court challenges and federal cases and different laws, different states doing different things, and very rarely does it make it up to the Supreme Court because they hear so few things, and eventually it will, but we don't know what the composition of the court will be like that. But the point is just like, in the way that right now things are just absolutely crazy around abortion all across the country, and they have been for years, like, you can picture something more similar to that with labor if that's the direction labor decides to go. That's how I think about it. Well, let's go into a little bit of the history, because, Sean, in your article, you bring out what it was like before the NLRA and the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Act and the Wagner Act that gave people the right to strike and the right to union protection. If we go back to the days of a really militant labor movement, not saying that this will bring it about, but it will bring about the conditions that you'll get strikes and strikes, you know, bring about solidarity, as we're seeing, and all kinds of acts that people engage in that they didn't think they were capable of before, acting in unison. So maybe you could bring out some of what happened before and whether you think we're on the cusp of something like that again. So 
I used to work for the Hotel Employees Union in New York, and so I sort of love their history and actually wrote my master's thesis on it. <laughs> There's this famous IWW strike in 1911 mm. in the fancy dining rooms of the hotels of New York. It's an industry-wide strike, and it falls apart when this one organizer basically threatens to poison the rich of the city if they don't recognize the union. Uh, so that strike fails. And the workers like the whole wobbly model, but they're like, you know, maybe we're not going to be wobblies because we don't need to have our organizers threatening murder and losing us middle-class support. So they become That's an the industrial called, workers of the world. Yeah, go on. Yeah, so they become a union called the Amalgamated Food Workers. Mm-hmm. And they were an independent union modeled on Sidney Hillman's Amalgamated Clothing Workers. They were probably the main union for the hotel industry from that time, from 1912 until into the 1930s. And they were competing with the official American Federation of Labor Union, uh, the hotel and restaurant employees, but they were also competing with the, you know, the building service employees union, thought that they should represent the janitors, the electricians thought they should represent the electricians. And at some point along the line, there was a split within the amalgamated food workers, and there was a communist union called the Industrial Union of Hotel Workers that formed up. And so between 1912 and 1934, there was an industry-wide strike in 1912, there was one in 1918, there was one in 1923, there was one in, I think, 1928, there was one in 1934, and each time the dynamic was one of the unions would spark the strike, hoping that by them making whatever wage demand they were, they were putting on the bosses, and by calling the strike, that more workers would rally to their flag and pay dues and join them, and that they would assert leadership on the shop floor and become the dominant union. I mean, this is a, this is a crazy dynamic. Every now and then, the official hotel and restaurant employees unions at the time, which particularly after Prohibition had a bit of a problem with the mafia, would swoop in and would sign an exclusive contract with the bosses at some cafeterias, and they would win. And so this fiercely sort of cutthroat competitive structure, and there was no labor peace for the hotels. And it was really only after the National Labor Relations Act gets passed, and even though it didn't even apply to hotels at the time, because it was based on interstate commerce and hotels weren't considered to be interstate commerce until the civil rights era, the employers wanted labor peace like a lot of the other industries were getting. They also had like a giant World's Fair that was getting organized in 1939, and they just did not want a strike in 1939. And so they basically begged the unions to merge And they said, if you guys can become one union, we will recognize you and we will sign an industry-wide contract with you that applies to all the hotels that are a part of our association because we just need to know that for at least the two years that this World's Fair is happening, that there's not going to be a strike, there's not going to be any job actions. In a microcosm, that is a lot of what happened across industry in general, that where unions finally established a degree of recognition and settlements with employers that were lasting, the employers preferred to deal with just one union because they wanted a guarantee that for the terms of their contract, and these were one- or two-year contracts at the time, eventually sort of becoming five-year deals and longer, they just wanted to know, we're done, that whatever issues you brought to the table, however they were settled, we're done with this. For the next three years, you're going to file a grievance if you disagree. You're not going to go on strike. And that is the framework that has brought a tremendous degree of stability to American workplaces for a number of decades until the employers started to tear it apart in the 1970s. 
Okay, but the implications, because American, a lot of people in Europe don't understand how it is that American workers have to enter into negotiations essentially with one hand tied behind their back because of labor law here. So there's a lot of restrictions. And you're saying that because the conservatives wanted and the employers have wanted to destroy unions, they're destroying some of the protections that have allowed for labor peace. And so all hell could break loose, as you've mentioned in the earlier period. And so I just want to hear a little bit more now about some of the other unintended consequences and how you think it might play out. It's a terrible question to ask crystal ball gazing, but you've been engaging in it a little bit. So aside from the clog up the lower courts with First Amendment challenges that Rachel was talking about, the thing that not enough people appreciate that I'm trying to shine a light on right now is this. Everybody talks about the free rider problem of right to work, and Janus is essentially a plan to turn the entire public sector right to work. Unions are legally required to represent all of the workers in a bargaining unit under exclusive representation. And so the agency fee or the union shop is compensation for that. And most people think of agency fee or union shop as compensation for the financial cost of having to file a grievance for somebody who doesn't choose to join the union or the financial cost of bargaining and running the various rallies and protests and strikes that you have to in order to win a good contract. But in reality, and historically, the agency fee is the compensation for the political costs of representing everybody in the bargaining unit. Because once you have to represent everybody and you've taken a deal, and particularly if it's a concessionary deal, even if these are necessary concessions, you know, in World War II, the, the unions agreed not to strike and they were rewarded with a wage freeze to combat inflation. And, you know, you're fighting the Nazis, so you, you kind of want to keep the line, you know, the assembly line rolling. But workers quit the union in protest because they weren't getting wage increases and the price of milk and eggs kept going up and they couldn't strike over it. So that's where what was first called maintenance of membership and eventually you know, became union shop and agency fee. So what's going to happen? There are two steps that I'm convinced are going to happen. The third step, I get a lot of pushback from folks on the left, including a good comrade of mine, Chris Brooks, at Labor Notes, um, mm-hmm. that it's less likely the third step happens. But the first two things that definitely happen is Unions are not going to like the free rider problem that comes with an adverse decision in Janus. And so there's already a debate, and there's no doubt in my mind that at least some unions are going to try to avoid the free rider problem by ceding exclusive representation. And what they want to do by doing that is basically to be able to tell a scab who chooses not to pay dues, you know, it's like, hey, if you have a grievance, you've got to be a member of the union or else that's your problem. We're only filing grievances for members of our union. So there's no doubt that some unions are going to seek to go members only just to deal with the free rider problem. But the moment that any union cedes exclusive representation, other organizations are going to step into that vacuum. And we know this because they already do in parts of the South, in the public sector, where there is no exclusive representation, and unions compete. Sometimes it's AFT versus NEA. Frequently, it's these sort of right-wing outfits that are consciously and deliberately not unions, but they offer a lot of the services that unions provide but also say, hey, we're not going to get involved in politics because we know you don't like abortion and you don't like voting for Democrats or whatever. And so it's a bad competition. It is right-wing outfits saying, hey, rather than join a union and vote for progressive issues, you can join us and we're cheaper, by the way, and you should do that. And there's no doubt in my mind that that's going to happen as well. These organizations already exist. There's a vast right-wing conspiracy of deep-pocketed donors 
who are very eager to attack unions, of course they're going to give those organizations grants to encourage them to fan out to northern urban locations and try to chip away at where there used to be union members. But once that there's a competition between the official union that has gone members only and the right-wing non-union union, I also think that it's basically inevitable that other groups that are hopefully more leftist, hopefully more militant, but at a minimum at least cranky, also decide to go their own way and become competitive workplace organizations. And basically their motivation will be, we got a bad deal in our last round of bargaining, so we're going to try to represent ourselves separately, and I think we can get a better deal. And even if we don't, we're not going to sign on to that no-strike clause because we want to continue to do protests because we think that the 2% raise, we could have gotten the 4% or, or whatever it is, where the chaos starts to develop. In a way, it's sort of that workers will now be able to fashion the union that represents their interests best, rather than the reverse, in a way. I don't know if that's exactly what you're saying, but that's what occurred to me as you were saying. And Rachel, maybe you should just come in and give your final thoughts on unintended consequences, uh, should public sector unions be gutted. It's kind of like Trump winning the election. Like, anyone who says that it was ultimately good is crazy. But, like, then you can also start to go back in your head and be like, well, if Hillary Clinton won, Republicans definitely would have probably swept the 2018 midterms and controlled 2020 on the states for redistricting. And both situations are terrible, but you can start to kind of at least imagine different opportunities. And I think the intended consequences we all are pretty clear on. We sort of understand because there have been states where this has already happened But the unintended consequences is really just about, like, what new opportunities might unions decide to take? I mean, and unions are kind of risk-averse, and so they're not really good at following up on all these, like, creative new ideas, except for the engineering unions pretty good at it. But I think it's this question of, like, if the rules kind of change, we don't know what the judges are going to do. And lots of people have responded being like, oh, why do you think they would rule any different? And it's like, we have no idea how the judges are going to rule, but what we can predict is that the unions could make different sorts of arguments. And I think that when you make different sorts of arguments, you change things around you. And that is what Sean's Bill of Rights thing is. It's like, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to win your free speech constitutional challenge, but what you might do is you might start to raise a lot of awareness because most of the public doesn't even know that you don't have free speech on the jobs. And if more people become aware that you lack free speech on the jobs as a result of your lawsuit that may not have successfully won on the court, maybe then you start pressuring lawmakers to change laws. And so you can be really cynical. And I think a win for the plaintiffs in Janus would be really bad for unions. But I also think you also need to be creative. And there are opportunities that this could create that are definitely worth pushing forward if you want to. That's what I have to say. I want to thank both of you for joining me on Jacobin Radio. And there's so much more to explore. So we'll bring you back. But I want to thank you for today. I've been speaking with Rachel Cohen, a contributing writer for The Intercept. She writes in a lot of places, including the American Prospect. And she has several interesting pieces on both Oklahoma teachers and on the Janus decision in The Intercept. And Sean Richmond, who's a former organizing director for the American Federation of Teachers and author of the Century Foundation Report, Labor's Bill 
Bill of Rights, and he has this great article in the Washington Post. If the Supreme Court rules against unions, conservatives won't like what happens next. And that's what we've been talking about, what might happen next. Thanks to both of you for joining me today. All right. Thank you. Thank you thank so you. much. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. We're going to have Erwin Chemerinsky next to talk about another assault. This time, the Trump administration and Jeff Sessions against the state of California. Governor Brown's calling it war on California. Don't go away. I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. Very pleased to have Erwin Chemerinsky with us. He's dean of Cal Berkeley's Law School. He's a leading expert in constitutional law. Today, we're going to talk about the Trump administration and Attorney General Jeff Sessions' lawsuit over three state laws the California legislature has passed to ensure essential non-complicity with the Trump administration's immigration enforcement raids and deportations that the state legislature sees as un-American and unconstitutional. So, Erwin Chemerinsky, let's just begin with what California laws they're talking about and what this really portends, and is this a constitutional issue? It's great to talk with you there's three different California laws that are at issue here. One is called the California Values Act that says that state and local police will not provide information about those who are arrested unless they've been arrested for a serious crime. In other words, the local jails aren't going to tell ICE officials who they're detaining unless a serious crime is involved. A second provision that's involved is what's called the Immigrant Workers Protection Act. And it prohibits employers from turning over information about their employees to ICE unless there's a subpoena or a warrant. And the third is a provision of a budget bill, and I think the most important part of it says that the state has the right to inspect local detention facilities that are contracting with the federal government. Okay, and so what are the kind of legal issues that the lawsuit that the Trump administration, they're essentially suing the state of California, and as I mentioned, Jerry Brown, our governor, has called this war on California. So what are these legal issues? The federal government is saying that the federal government gets to control immigration policy, and the state can't interfere with that federal objective. Now, each of the three provisions I mentioned to you has a different legal issue. And for the first, what the state of California says is, the federal government can't tell it what to do, can't coerce its behavior. The Supreme Court has previously said, Congress can't compel states to engage in regulatory behavior. There's a Supreme Court case, Prince versus United States, from 1997, where the Supreme Court declared unconstitutional a provision of the federal Brady Handgun Control Act they required that state and local law enforcement personnel do background checks before issuing permits for guns. The Supreme Court said it violates the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution for Congress to commandeer the state and local governments to force them to do something. Well, California says, likewise, federal government doesn't have any right to force state and local governments to turn over information to ICE. But what about a lot of the newspapers are bringing up the Arizona case and that this is the kind of reverse of that, that essentially, if you could tell our listeners, Erwin Chemerinsky, is all about the supremacy clause, is it not that the federal government is the one that rules over the states in these cases? 
Arizona versus the United States involved Arizona's restrictive immigration statute, SB 1070. And the Supreme Court largely declared it unconstitutional, saying a state can't interfere with federal immigration policy. And that's what the federal government is arguing here. Now, it's the first of those provisions I said. California says, but in the context of SB 1070, it wasn't the federal government forcing the state to do anything. It was the Supreme Court saying the state can't have its own immigration policy. I think the provision of California law that's most likely vulnerable, especially in light of Arizona versus the United States, is the Immigrant Workers Protection Act. It says that employers cannot turn over information to ICE without a warrant or subpoena. And there's a $10,000 fine if they do. Here, the federal government isn't forcing state or local governments to do anything. Here, the federal government is going to say, California is just getting in the way of interfering, just interfering with the federal objective, federal policy with regard to immigration. So I think that there, the federal government has a much stronger argument. The state has a weaker argument. But isn't the federal government saying really, one, that, you know, California is a sanctuary state and we're going to, you know, retaliate essentially against that? And that, in fact, the kinds of raids that ICE is undertaking are not about just hunting down immigrants, but about public safety. And I don't know how that's translated into these cases, but is that, is that something that the court will discuss? It's all part of the background. The federal government is saying we're enforcing immigration law because we're getting dangerous people out of the country. California is saying, but we have good reasons to not cooperate with federal immigration officials. Police departments know that if people are afraid that they're going to be deported, victims of crime won't come forward. Witnesses to crime won't come forward. People are sick, won't go to public hospitals for treatment, even if they have communicable diseases, if they fear early deportation. Parents won't send their kids to school if they fear it'll lead to deportation. And so that's what sanctuary is about, not literally providing sanctuary, but saying state and local governments don't want to cooperate with federal immigration officials. The federal government can enforce immigration law how it wants. What's really an issue in these cases to what extent can the federal government force state and local governments to do its bidding? And what do you think will be the outcome in many of these other cases that not related to this, even on the tariff question, they immediately start to carve out exemptions. Are there exemptions to what in this lawsuit that we could imagine, for example, that would allow California not sovereignty per se, but at least, you know, to continue in the way that they are? If the Supreme Court follows current law, I think the California Values Act is constitutional the federal government can't force local governments to cooperate with federal officials. I think the budget plan, that's the provision that says the state's going to inspect detention facilities, I think that's constitutional. I worry, though, about the Immigrant Workers Protection Act. I share with the sympathies with the laws about, but I don't think that the state can prevent businesses from choosing to share information with ICE officials. That just seems it's interfering with the federal government. Right. I understand that, Erwin Chemerinsky. And there's another potentially related decision that the Supreme Court made, I guess, last week, striking down the Ninth Circuit case that was brought by the ACLU, saying that immigrants have a right to bail hearings every six months if kept in detention. Is this all of a piece or is this completely unrelated? That's a great question. Let me tell you about the case. It's a case called Jennings versus Rodriguez. 
And it involves people who are in prolonged detention pending deportation. Let's say it's over 50 days, so it could stretch into years. And the Ninth Circuit said, if the government's going to be holding people for a long period of time, it should have to either show they're a threat to society or they're a flight risk. And the Ninth Circuit said, we're going to come to this conclusion by interpreting the federal statute in this way. The Supreme Court said, no, that's not what the federal statute says. The federal statute here allows this detention, but doesn't require bail hearings. But then the Supreme Court said, Ninth Circuit now decides whether that's constitutional or not. So all the Supreme Court did in this case was hold that the federal statute authorizes detention without bail hearings. Whether that's constitutional or not is left for another day. Is this all related? In one sense it is. It's really about how much are we going to allow the federal government in controlling immigration to take away basic human rights. Well, I guess this is a little segue since we have two or three minutes left into, in fact, the Janus decision, which seems to be a replay of the Friedrichs decision that was a tie because Scalia died. And that is over what the federal government can do and perhaps the unintended consequences that may come from gutting public sector unions, which mean that things like no strike clauses will no longer be in operation and we'll get more wildcat strikes. I wonder if maybe you could opine and, and sort of say if there's any kind of connection in, in all of these cases. What's important here is it involves laws in California and over 20 other states that say that no one has to join a public employees union, but non-members have to pay the share of the dues that go to support collective bargaining. The Supreme Court in 1977 said... Non-union members benefit from collective bargaining so they can be required to pay their fair share. They benefit their wages, their hours, their working conditions. The issue in Janus versus American Federation is whether the Supreme Court should overrule that precedent and find that non-union members don't have to pay for the share of dues that go to collective bargaining. Okay. I wish it were otherwise, but I think it's going to be five to four to rule against these state laws, to rule against fair share, it was 4-4 without Justice Gorsuch, and I don't think there's much doubt he's going to join the conservatives. That's what everybody thinks, but I guess what others are saying is this may open the door to unintended consequences that labor law is essentially there to prevent. I want to thank you for your time and, of course, ask you to be available the next time we need to discuss these issues, Erwin Chemerinsky. It's always my great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, and congratulations. Erwin Chemerinsky is Dean and Distinguished Professor of Law at UC Berkeley. That's the Bolt School of Law, and thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Mm-hmm.